Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Dr. Marsha Stevenson about her book, published by the University of Texas Press, titled Llamas Beyond the Andes, The Untold History of Camelids in the Modern World, which is fascinating. I mean, from the title alone, how could you not want to read this book? And think about, hang on, how did llamas get beyond the Andes? What was going on here? Um, Why do we still have llamas in some parts of the world? And what I was fascinated to learn is there were a lot of ideas to make llamas in a lot more places than we currently have them. So lots of untold history to get into here. Marsha, thank you so much for joining us to tell us all about it. Thank you so much, Miranda, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very glad to have you. Could we start off, please, with an introduction from yourself and an explanation of why you decided to write this book? Certainly. Um, I have a PhD in Spanish from Indiana University uh, with a specialization actually in literature, Latin American literature and cultural studies. Uh, I have taught here at Purdue University for the past 32 years, uh, courses, undergraduate and graduate level courses in literature and culture. And I just recently retired as uh, this past August, 2023. And now I'm Professor Emerita of Spanish. Uh, as far as the book goes, it was, it was kind of an offshoot of my first book, which was on gender and modernity in Andy and Bolivia. But with all my travels to Bolivia, and I had spent two years there studying when I was in, uh, right out of high school, I saw llamas all the time, and I was just fascinated by the animals. They were, I just thought they were beautiful. Their faces were extraordinary, the colors of their fleece, and I was just drawn to them. And so many years later, when I was uh, came across this book of vintage French circus posters from the 19th century and saw an ad for jumping llamas in a circus in France, I thought, This is incredible. How did these animals get to France in the 19th century, let alone form troops and circuses? And so I thought this is a really compelling idea for a short article. And I thought I would work on it and create one article and discovered that there were, as the more I read, the more I traveled to archives that these stories moved way beyond circuses way beyond the 19th century and took me back farther and farther in time until I realized that these stories of moving llamas out of the Andes really began with the first contact of the Spanish in the 16th century and and, and the Andes. And so I decided this isn't one story, it's many stories, but it fits together as this incredible centuries-long project to move the animals out of the Andes um, because they were so valuable. They are so valuable as sources of meat and fleece. And so that's kind of how I got started on this long path. Mm. No, I I find it um, amusing just how often we sort of go, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that could be an article. Oh, wait, hang on. Um, And I'm not surprised at all uh, that this book started off that way. You mentioned the kind of going back in time and continually finding things further back. So can you tell us a bit about what time period the book covers and how you eventually determined this? Sure. Um, I, I decided against a, a purely chronological study because I couldn't cover every single story, but I thought it would be nice to pick certain case histories that reflected some of the changes and some of the constants of what I call camelid contact zones from the beginning of first contact and extending up through the first half of the 20th century. And so I was looking at instances where the camelid serve as a meeting point or a juncture for different groups. And that was one of the advantage of looking at these contact zones. And I think we'll probably talk about that more later, but how they brought different peoples, different actors together in ways that revealed 
many stories and this one story would spin into another story would spin into another story. And so I really had to select kind of representative stories or stories that caught my attention or that, that showed a particular aspect of the process of removing the camelids from the Andes and taking them abroad. And so uh, I have stories from the early colonial period um, the, when primarily what was of interest to the Spanish or most accessible were the innards of the camelids, the bezoar stones that they took out of their gut and used for medicinal purposes. Um, and then in, that led me to talking a little bit about dissection, cutting up the animals, uh, and comparing and contrasting Europeans' interest in that process with the native pra practices of sacrifice and so forth, and how the cutting up of the animal had different meanings for different communities. Um, then I moved from there more, more toward the 18th century when large people really began to imagine larger scale projects of removing the animals from the Andes and taking them to Europe. And so I have a couple of examples from that period. And then I move into the 19th century, which is really the heart of the book, because that's when the large the efforts, large-scale efforts, let's say, to remove large numbers of camelids out of the Andes really came into focus in the mid-19th century. And then I, I, so I look at the rise and fall of those efforts. And then by the 20th century, there's less interest in removing the actual animal for commercial purposes as there is interest in using the animals as symbols um, for different aspects of the new fiber industry and the resulting merchandise of the, the creation of very expensive llama, alpaca, and vicuña coats, dresses, accessories, and so forth. And so the llamas came to symbolize different kinds of uh, meanings for different groups again in the 20th century. Hmm. All right. I mean, that was a fabulous answer, both for literally telling us uh, the time period, but also for giving us so many cool things that I'm now obviously going to have to ask you about. Um, starting kind of the furthest back and maybe to modern ears, the weirdest part, because uh, when you mentioned at the beginning, the whole, why are they valuable? The, the fur. Okay. Yeah, we can work with that. The wool makes sense. The meat. All right. Maybe not something we see on menus now, but we're maybe a little bit more used to that idea, but I'm sorry, the stones in the innards that can cure things through medicine magic, we kind of have to start there. So what is this Bezoar stone? How did it acquire such value that Europeans are willing to trek up some very tall mountains to try and rummage around and find it inside a llama? <laughs> or a vicuña, or an alpa, uh, mainly in, in the wild camelids. So I'll talk about that in a second. Some people may be familiar with the Bezoar stones if they've read the Harry Potter books, because Harry or Ron, I think, is Ron is poisoned, and Harry has to find Bezoar stones from Snape's lab and to to save him. So the Bezoar I will admit stones... was my only reference point before your book. Yes. <laughs> well, that's the reference most people come up with when I mention them, and so I thought I should put that in context, the um, Bezoar stone actually came into European consciousness, let's say, through the ancient Jewish, Arab, and Persian philosopher-physicians that were writing treatises on the stone as an antidote and as, and as an efficacious medicinal for, other kind, for snake bites, insect bites, poisonings if someone tried to do an arrival by putting something in their beverage. Bezoar stones were considered to be an excellent remedy. Um, and this is, we're looking at treatises that were written in the 9th through the 12th centuries. Um, Moses Maimonides and others uh, thought the Bezoar stone was second only to emeralds as antidotes for uh, poisonings. Uh, and so it, they were believed, Bezoar stones, it was believed that they could cure fevers, um, intestinal worms, poisonings, uh, just simple lovesickness, melancholy. They had all kinds of roles in medicine. And they came first into Europe from many of the Portuguese colonies, including India. And then other stones were introduced from Persia and China. 
And so when the Spanish found Bezoar stones in the Camelids in the Andes, this was thought to be a wonderful new profit-making industry, bringing Bezoars into Europe. Uh, they were very expensive. They brought in huge sums of money. They were rare. There was a whole industry of counterfeit Bezoars. So you never really knew if you had a real Bezoar, an authentic Bezoar, or a fake. And that's where the expression caveat emptor comes from. Uh, a man bought a Bezoar in England, believed it to be real, used it, it didn't work, and so he believed, he argued it was a counterfeit Bezoar and sued, and he lost this case because of caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. So it's kind of like people, we've heard of having kidney stones, gallstones. A Bezoar is a similar kind of concretion that's formed in the gut, and many animals have them. Um, but if a European found a bezoar in their cow or in their sheep. They weren't very interested. Those those didn't have the properties that this more exotic bezoars were believed to have. So the bezoars came from so-called exotic places and so-called exotic animals. And many people didn't even know what the exact animals were that produced these bezoars in Persia, India, and then later in South America. But they, they brought in, they were so expensive that the only people who could really afford to have a bezoar, a stone, would be the royalty, high, high nobility, uh, high members of the, the, the church. Those, we, we couldn't afford bezoar stones. And so people that had them would often lend them to friends or family members who were sick with the plague or some other disease. They would give them, they would lend them their bezoar. You could scrape it put the scrapings in a liquid and then drink the liquid and that would presumably protect you from the poisoning or the illness. So they had many uses. The pharmacies uh, collected them. The Jesuits were very famous for shipping pounds and pounds of vicuña and other, they, they liked the camelids, the vicuña, the guanaco, the two wild species and wild deer. Those are the three animals they collected bezoars from in the Andes, primarily, for shipping back to Italy, to Rome, and to the pharmacies in Madrid. Huh. All right. That is pretty fascinating. So thank you for starting us off with that one. Um, while we're in the innards, can you tell us about um, the kind of wider exploration beyond the let's find this one little stone inside of them? to the more systematized investigations that began about the whole body of the camelid. What exactly were these investigations doing and how did they relate to the wider colonial projects underway? Um, great question. Um, for Europeans, the impetus for studying the innards of the camelids was precisely to look for bezoar stones. Um, so it was an economic impetus really from the beginning or, or maybe you could also say medical, but primarily economics, because people, the soldiers, as soon as they discovered these animals had bezoar stones, everybody, they began to massacre the animals, the wild camelids, by the hundreds, according to the colonial um, documents, so that they could find the stones and sell them and make a lot of money. So that was the primary impetus. Um, we have, in the early 18th century, a French... Uh, astronomer, mathematician, priest, uh, who uh, was given his, he was on a scientific expedition and was given, his, his captain was given two camelids. One died, so he was able to dissect that. And again, the idea of dissection, exploring the body interior was even a Renaissance idea that was linked to the notion of mapping or exploring unknown territory. The inside, the body interior was also unknown and needed to be mapped. And so the, the, particularly this 18, early 18th century physician who mapped the camelid intestine uh, system as stomachs and the intestines, he did that after he opened the animal up but couldn't find any bezoars. He was disappointed, but took the opportunity to then trace out the stomachs, the and the intestines and, and to kind of give a, a working idea of what that interior body looked like. And so he basically mapped it for Europeans. 
And so the idea is once you map a territory, it becomes easier to possess. And I think the idea was you map the body interior, in this case, and you, you find it's like the map to the treasure. Um, and the treasure is the Bezoar stone. Later on, the more that was known about the body interior led to a better understanding of the dietary needs, uh, what kinds of food should be given to these animals so that when they began to look to ship it, to ship large numbers of the animals, they were better able to, or they hoped that they would be better able to provide and keep them safe and healthy during these long transoceanic voyages. So what began, it was always an economic project. It began with the search for the Bezoar stones and then became a larger project of how to keep these animals safe and healthy as we bring them out of the Andes. Hmm. So one thing that kind of the detail of those investigations really highlighted for me, at least reading it, is that even though this clearly was something that at least some people were very excited about, they knew that it wasn't going to be that simple to get llamas everywhere else that they could possibly want them. So can you right. help us understand what challenges they thought that these schemes might face and how they thought they might overcome it? Obviously, understanding what to feed them was part of it, but can you take right. us through the bigger picture? Sure. Um First of all, they had to learn how to acquire the animals. And unlike the sheep and cows and pigs that were transported from Europe to the New World, llamas and, and, and raised by often by mestizos in large haciendas, the camelids, llamas and alpacas, were always raised in large numbers by indigenous peoples. So that meant anyone who wanted to acquire the animals really had to deal with indigenous pastoral communities, either themselves or through an intermediary, like a local priest. So the first, in the, in the, and for the most part, indigenous communities, indigenous shepherds did not want to part with the animals. They're extremely valuable for the reasons we've mentioned, their fleece and their meat, but they're also valuable in setting up symbolic relationships within the community, within family members, and so on. And anthropologists have looked and studied these kinds of symbolic relationships that the animals mean so that their their value was more than just how Europeans saw them, um, but they had all kinds of symbolic value as well. And so they were really unwilling for the most part, with some exceptions, to part with these animals. So many times they were taken by force or paid huge sums of money as a way to entice them to give them up. So that was the first challenge. How, how do you acquire the animals? The second challenge was how to transport them, how to keep them alive, both overland and then across the oceans. So the options were you could either walk them overland from the Andes to Buenos Aires, which is a long way through desert-like territory. You could walk them to the coast in Peru and then ship, well, and then ship them north and then cross them over the Isthmus of Panama, which was also extremely difficult uh, due to the geography and the climate, and then ship them from the eastern coast of Panama to Spain or France or England. Or you can walk them to the coast of Peru and then board them on ship and take them down south around the coast of Cape, around Cape Horn, which was also an exceedingly difficult and treacherous journey. So how to ship them, how to transport them. The animals would get banged around and they were fragile uh, so they could break a leg, they could, they could injure themselves so that they wouldn't be useful. They had to be slaughtered and then they would be eaten. Um, you have the problem of wild camelids versus the domesticated camelids. It was very hard to keep the cunas and guanacos in any kind of confinement. They would just bang against it trying to get out. Uh, and so that was a problem. If the ship was becalmed overly long, a lot of times the cargo, like the meat, pro the sources of meat, including the camelids, would be eaten by the crew to survive. Um, the males had to be separated from the females if possible. Otherwise, the males were continually trying to mount the females, which could create, could, which, which could harm the females. Uh, pregnancy, if the females were pregnant, any, any kind of high seas, being bounced around, banged into things, often induced pregnancy early, and many of the camelids, the females, didn't survive that. 
nor did the offspring. Um, so there was there were just many challenges for the shipping. Then when you get to the new place, the the, the few animals that survived, they had to find a, a an appropriate place to put them, like a climate that would be somewhat similar to the Andes, and figure out what's the best diet. And they tended to overfeed them a rich diet, which the animals actually do better with a with a poor diet, with the grasses from the Andes. And so many of them would get sick from the new diet. Um, anxiety, can stress can cause a number of diseases in the animals. And so the whole question of transportation really um, raised many challenges. And how did they think they'd overcome all of this? It sounds pretty impossible. It was pretty difficult. And the numbers of of surviving animals prior to the 19th century, I mean, we're talking about maybe two animals would make the trip um, and maybe one would survive uh, because they were first sent mainly in small numbers as curiosities or as gifts to the royalty. But once they started to really look into shipping higher numbers, that's when they really had more trouble and they just kept trying to learn you know, first they learned they needed to separate the males and females after they had a disaster with the, the the males basically harming a lot of the females when they were put together. Um, they had to decide what what kind of containers to ship them in. Would they do better in small containers or large containers? So experience helped some, but it really didn't necessarily help some of the pernicious diseases like the skin diseases that would wipe out huge numbers of the animals from just from being confined. Many animals would arrive covered in insects and um, or they would shear the animals before they reach the tropic zones to keep them from getting over hot, overly heated, let's say. But then the animals would be cold when they reach the northern climes. So they learned to maybe short shear them, but not fully. And so again, it was kind of a hit and miss experiment. Huh. Uh-huh. Mainly a miss. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, could you tell us about uh, one of the examples of this, the, the comment you made about kind of curiosities for royalty? You talk about in the book, Empress Josephine Bonaparte, in fact, makes a comment and it results in two dozen camelids. What is going on with this story? <laughs> so in the 18th century, the Comte de Buffon, who was a famous natural historian from France, he called on the French government to import camelids, alpacas and vicuñas. He wasn't sure how many species there were, but he recognized llamas and vicuñas. And some people have talked about a third species called apacos. And he didn't know what that was, um, but he called for the importation of llamas and vicuñas because of their value. And so Josephine was the first to respond to this call for a large scale. She was, of course, came after Buffon, the early 19th century. But she had a, a garden in Malmaison where she was raising all kinds of botan uh, botanicals, and she wanted to have a menagerie as well. And so the first animal she got was a gift of two llamas from um, a captain who had been in the Caribbean, and that's a whole other story. But she realized these animals were wonderful, and so she wanted a dozen vicuñas and a dozen alpacas for her garden. And what her idea was that she wanted them to raise them to create a new livestock for, for France. But they didn't want to tell the Spanish government. They were allies at the time, but she didn't want to tell the the Spanish government, because the Spanish government was already un, un, uh, unhappy with France because France had gotten a lot of its merino sheep, which had previously they had tried to keep as a monopoly within France. And so the Spanish didn't want the camelids to, be, to go the way of the merino sheep. So what Josephine wrote, what she wrote to the Queen of Spain, she requested a dozen of alpacas and a dozen of vicuñas as curiosities. She wanted to keep them as curiosities in her Malmaison garden. And that was the pretext she gave. And so the queen and king of Spain agreed to this royal gift, and they sent a command to the, the, the viceroys and governors of South America, really La Plata, Lima, uh, and even the captaincy of Santiago in Chile, 
requesting that they get these animals and send them to the queen, to the, sorry, to, to Josephine. And so what this story tells us is the huge gap or difference that takes place between what we call armchair science, the Buffons, the, the, um, the Juan de Ulloa um, of Spain and so forth, Juan and Ulloa, Jorge Juan and Ulloa, the people who wrote about the Camelids and the need to bring them to Spain and to France, but then the people on the ground, what happens when this order comes through? Um, who is going to actually fulfill this order? How do they get the animals? Who's going to bring them to Europe, etc.? And so it's a long story um, of animal science, basically, and of political international politics and intrigue, because as the international politics, the shifting, the alliances between countries shifted, Spain and France with the uh, occupation, the French occupation of Spain in 1808, they no longer are allies. And where England and Spain had been enemies, they became allies against the, Sp the French occupation. Spain and England became allies against the French occupation of Spain. And so the, the, these shifting alliances also impacted on what was going to happen, where were these animals were going to go, be sent. Um, the experiment also highlights the huge expense it cost uh, to bring these animals, large numbers of the animals, across South America and over to Spain. They ended up in Spain. They never did make it to France because of the occupation. So uh, it... It really provides a detailed look at it, it, how a project like this develops on the ground. And of course, it also calls attention to the large numbers of animal mortality because they had to keep replenishing these, these 12 uh, alpacas and 12 vicuñas because they would die off. And so they walked them from, they, they transported them by ship from Peru, Lima, Callao, down to Valparaíso, from there, they walked them over the Andes to um, Arge into Argentina, where then they built carts and then transported them by carts to Buenos Aires. Uh, and again, they had animals, vicuñas, wild animals that would try to escape and run off. Um, they, they had all kinds of challenges. And so this, this experiment really, I think, demonstrated clearly <laughs> The, the challenges and the gap between issuing a proclamation, send us these animals, and then the effort that was required to, to actually send them. Yeah, no, really, that is a, quite a massive gap. And as you're detailing, despite the kind of time change that we've covered um, through our discussion so far, it, it's not really getting any easier to do this. So I guess my question is, why didn't they give up? Why were they still so, like, into this idea of not just curiosities, but a much bigger project of extraction, of acclimatization as we move into the 19th century? Well, um, that's a great question. The, the animals were very fragile and their success rates were, were low, but they really, uh, Europeans believed that this was going to be an, a really valuable resource for their populations and the populations of their colonies. When you think about the amount of protein that an average commoner, quote unquote, would have had access to, it was quite low. And so it was believed that these animals, if they could be introduced into rural areas that didn't usually have as much uh, wealth, that they would be in a, a wonderful added resource because of the meat and fiber they would produce. There were some that believed they would also be a new source of milk, but Camelot's milk production is actually quite low, and so that never materialized as a, as a possibility, um, as a possible resource, but that was the belief at one time. And so in the mid-19th century, France and England in particular began to work aggressively at acclimatizing valuable animals from one place, one part of the world and bringing them to another part of the world for introduction and hopefully acclimatization where they could be become a, a lasting new livestock. And so England wanted to bring camelids to Australia and France wanted to bring camelids into France and uh, in its colonies in Northern Africa and Algeria and so forth. 
And so um, they just figured they were going to figure it out. They, they believed they could they would eventually make this a profitable enterprise. Um, the 1840s had brought a terrible um, period time of hunger. They called them the hunger hungry 40s. And they just they didn't want to go through another period like that of starvation, mass starvation. And so when they when the French put together the started their acclimatization society, the Paris Acclimatization Society, the the number one animal they wanted to bring to Europe and its colonies was the alpaca and the llama. But um, a lot of times they couldn't distinguish between the two of them. And so they believed that these were two really valuable resources and there must be a way. Well, speaking of there must be a way, um, and perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, this doesn't work. <laughs> Given the challenges we've been talking about, this is probably not a surprise at this point. But can you help us understand kind of how and when they realized that this probably wasn't going to work? Because, for example, the uh, description you give in the book of Charles Ledger, they really tried hard. So right. how and why did this enthusiasm really not work out? There are kind of two main stories that illustrate this, I think. One is the French story and one is the British story. So the French story, the effort to bring the Camelids in the 19th century from the Andes to France was a government-sponsored enterprise, and the government paid people, um, basically only once once they had reached Europe, they, they kind of had to finance, find a way to finance their, these would be, entrepreneurs, adventurers uh, who were willing to go to the Andes and, and, and bring back a large herd of camelids. That was the project. Once they would return to France, the idea was they would be paid for the animals that were surviving. So um, this was a government-sponsored enterprise financed by the government. So it, it had a lot of meat behind it, if you will. Um, but even so, this one large expedition that was brought back to France, by the time they, again, they had a large, they, they, the, the adventurer, the French adventurer, took the animals north across the Isthmus of Panama and across the Atlantic. The casualties were very high, and really only about a quarter of the animals that he brought out survived the trip. And those that arrived were covered with skin mange, with a, a mange, a very pernicious mange that really ended up wiping out the entire lot. So even the ones that survived the trip only survived for a few months, maybe a year at the most afterwards. And so France finally decided at that point after these experiments failed, it just was, it was too expensive and, and wasn't coming to anything. In the case of the British, uh, it was, there was there was government interest in in this project, but not so much direct sponsorship like the French government did. So we have a man named Charles Ledger, who was kind of a um, a settler, if you want, who moved to the Andes when he was young. He was eighteen, married a Peruvian woman, and developed this enterprise to smuggle alpacas and llamas out of of the Andes to take them to Australia with the promise the he met with the British consulate in Lima who they told him we would like you to do this and you will be handsomely rewarded uh, once you reach uh, Australia. So he expected he was going to be the next MacArthur who had taken Merino sheep to uh, Australia and made tons of money. So Charles Ledger believed he would be the next MacArthur and this time he would bring alpacas and llamas. And he got a group of Bolivian shepherds to help him. He got 30, over 30 shepherds and they smuggled the animals, alpacas and llamas, out of Bolivia down into the northern part of Argentina where they stayed in a place called Laguna Blanca for a year while they worked on preparing the animals for the overseas uh, ocean voyage. So they got them used to eating dry forage as opposed to fresh grass. He had a he had a hybridization pro program where he was hybridizing llamas and alpacas with the hopes that he would have a sturdier animal than the alpaca, but with the valuable fleece of the alpaca. So they had several projects going on there. Also, they had lost a lot of their alpacas when they first moved into Argentina from disease. 
And so by hybridizing the alpacas that he did have with the llamas, he hoped to breed them back into pure alpacas over a certain number of generations. So those were ledger's projects. And so after about a year, they crossed the Andes, which was very difficult, down into to Chile, and then they shipped the animals to Australia. They all went. He could only take 12 of the Bolivian shepherds with him because there wasn't enough money uh, to, or room to take any more. So he had a flock of over 300 animals plus 12 shepherds, and they landed in Sydney, Australia uh, in about 1859. And the, there was still a high, high rate of morta high mortality rate, but still an, he ended up with about 200 animals there. But the government in Australia had changed by the time he got there. And there was the because it had been illegal to take the animals out of the Andes, the British government didn't give Ledger anything in writing. It was just an oral gentleman's agreement. So by the time he got to Australia, the, he had spent a lot, lot of his own money and he wanted to be reimbursed for those expenses and the government refused to do that. They only reimbursed him for the cost of the loan that he had gotten from a, a merchant in uh, Chile. So he received 15,000 pounds, which was a huge amount of money, but he had spent much closer to 20,000 pounds or 25,000 pounds. So he was broke. Um, he went into bankruptcy and the government wasn't interested in really creating this alpaca industry. The new government wasn't. And so the, to make a long story short, he was never really, really reimbursed and the government ended up kind of dispersing the animals, which Ledger had wanted to keep together so that he could create this herd of hybrid animals that would eventually become full-blood alpacas. And the government just didn't want to spend the money. Um, and Ledger was used to working on his own. He wasn't used to taking orders from the government. It was a huge kind of bureaucracy, and it was very frustrating to him. And eventually, the government sold the animals off to individuals, and Charles Ledger went back to South America, very frustrated and bitter. So that enterprise pretty much ended, and about the same time as France decided, these um, acclimatization projects really are costing us a lot of money and not resulting in anything profitable. And we were also beginning to see the idea that noxious species were being introduced and running rampant. This was especially seen in Australia, for example, not with the alpacas, but with other animals like birds that were released and snakes and so forth. So they, they finally decided to put an end to the acclimatization projects. They just couldn't afford them. So that was the end pretty much of these experiments. Wow. After all that, um, yeah. finally, it, it, it gets to the idea of, hmm, maybe this doesn't really work. Um, but as you said, the llamas get sold off to individuals, um, so they don't all die. Some survive. What, what happens to these llamas that are, what, in someone's backyard in Sydney, wandering around the French Alps? I mean, what happens to these llamas? The, the animals wandering around in Sydney uh, fade from the archive by about the 18 late 1860s. So people kept them on their ranch, their their farms, their their estates. Um, a few were given to insane asylums in Australia to uh, uh, entertain the patients there. Um, in France, we had one case of a, of a, of a llama that was taken to the Vosges uh, Mountains in uh, not the area of, called Nancy. And that animal became a local celebrity. He was taken to to local fairs, little children were permitted to ride on him. He was shorn or sheared. His fleece was used for uh, local competitions, and he was named um, Lima. And the the uh, sorry, he was named Peru. And people just loved him. Uh, he was a real celebrity. They brought in two more llamas. One was a female named Lima, and Lima and Peru had a baby named Mexico. And so they were really beginning to think that that they were going to be able to create a, a herd of llamas here in the Vosges and that they would be a great livestock. Um, and they were just beloved. They were kept more like pets rather than livestock. They were given names. They were um, fussed over. 
they they weren't just kind of relegated to a field. They were they were really treated like pets almost. But unfortunately, uh, after a fourth animal was introduced to this group, it apparently brought with it this terrible skin disease, and all of the animals caught it, and they died off one by one. And so they survived there for about two years, and then to the 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 people taking care of the animals were just heartbroken, uh, but they lost the entire group. So again, it was a project that ended really in, in, in heartbreak and failure. That doesn't sound great for the llamas um, in either instance. Can we, however, move away from, I mean, I'm sure that we could probably go around all the different places that they were sent to and find various strange stories of what happened to them. But can I ask you to tell us about llamas, iconographic llamas, I suppose, rather than llamas that actually were living outside the Andes? Um, sure. Because that, that last example of sort of the beloved, the iconic, the children go see them on the weekend, in some ways there's a lot of parallels to the section of the book where you talk about llamas in advertising in the United States. So right. can you tell us a bit about kind of what llamas, not really real llamas, pictures of llamas, are being used for in this instance and how this is part of this whole story the book is telling about imperial contact zones? Sure. Um, by the early 20th century, there was, because of the failures of the 19th century, um, fab, you know, fabric companies, companies manufacturing textiles in the U.S., for example, the, the emphasis was not bringing the live animals, but rather importing the fiber from Peru. And so, but nonetheless, they could still use llamas as symbols and they kind of had, um, I call them polysemic symbols, meaning they had more than one meaning. On the one hand, advertise the, these textile companies would use the camelids, images of the camelids as a sign of the so-called primitive, um, I'm using the word primitive in quotes, primitive regions of the world, a representative of uh, indigenous peoples, especially the Inca, not so much contemporary indigenous peoples, but more of this kind of ancient uh, symbol. Um, so they, they stood for this sort of primitive world, a world that was giving the West its valuable fiber because the West knew how to use the fiber. I'm, I, I'm being um, obviously somewhat cynical here. Oh. Um, on the other hand, these, symbol, these animals symbolized a very luxuriant modernity. Um, they were sewn, pictures of the animals were sewn in, as part of the labels into these very expensive coats made from 100% alpaca, 100% llama, 100% vicuña that cost an arm and a leg. And they would use images of royalty for selling these products. Treat your, your wife like a queen, buy her this 100% vicuña coat. Uh, that would cost in the 1930s, 40s, $5,000, $6,000, which would be about oh, $40,000 today. They were, they were very expensive. So only the wealthy, they, so they became symbols of wealth and status. And storefronts selling these expensive quotes used camelids, stuffed animals, um, as, as part of their displays that were influenced, I think, a lot by natural history dioramas where they, that you would find in museums at the time where you would have stuffed animals kind of reenacting scenes. You'd have other realia such as um, baskets, textiles, um, wool, and so forth um, in these storefront windows to attract customers. And llamas, stuffed or in pictures, are very attractive creatures, and, and they attract customers. So they're, they're compelling curiosities. People wanted to touch the stuffed animals. They wanted to, to, to possess this fiber. And so that was one way to bring customers into your store, was to have these stuffed creatures in your storefront. Huh. How fascinating to think about that aspect um, of this, and especially because I believe I understand from the books that some of these brands and icons are still very much with us. Um, so I wonder if we can use that to talk about kind of some of the longer term impacts of all of this, the significant implications of these various projects over the time period that you discuss. Certainly. Um, I, I think one of the overarching 
themes or maybe it's more of a method is this looking at a Camelid contact zone how and how it brings different people together, whether it's consumers and manufacturers or um, native peoples and co uh, colonizers or soldiers or scientists and um, merchants and so forth, that the Camelot contact zone continues to be a very productive, I believe, point of departure uh, for many areas of interdisciplinary research. I mean, this, this brought to light all kinds of, as I mentioned, stories and agents, actors, uh, including uh, indigenous peoples. Um, these stories brought to light indigenous peoples as actors rather than just backdrops or victims of colonization. They would participate in these enterprises either by actually refusing to sell the animals, refusing to let Europeans take the animals, or by uh, participating in some of these these um, adventures or, or projects. You know, so they actually had a, and they were the ones that had the knowledge how to care for the animals so by looking at Camelid contact zones, I learned much more, or we brought to light much more evidence of indigenous peoples as actors with knowledge and that were active producers of knowledge. And for that reason, many people in the 19th century in particular brought indigenous shepherds along with the animals in the boats um, because they, they believed these were the people that knew how to take care of these animals. Then they could also blame them when the animals didn't, didn't survive um, well, if we only had used Western um, sailors instead of these indigenous shepherds, we would have maybe had a better cargo, better rate of success. So, um, so one on the one hand, these um, Camelid contact zones bring to light all kinds of actors who are typically are marginalized from the main colonizing colonial histories. Um, they also bring to light material evidence of different kinds. Skeletons tell stories, skulls still tell stories, stuffed animals found in museum storage compartments tell stories of their origins and, and how they evolve as artifacts even. Their, their role as an artifact might even be different from their role when they were living animals. So I think this, the Camelot contact zone enables us or, or provides a way to have access to an interdisciplinary story a story that, that brings new perspectives to um, our notion of what medicine is, or our notion of what role indigenous peoples play, and so on. And so I, that's, I think, one of the benefits of the book is these kind of new understandings of, um, of what kinds of stories can be fruitful mm. for, yeah, for excavating knowledge. Absolutely. Um if I could ask a sort of behind the scenes question, I suppose, uh, as we've been both sort of hinting at, there was a lot to uncover in doing this research, a lot of stories that we probably hadn't put together or maybe hadn't been really aware of at all. So is there anything you can tell us about that was maybe a surprise moment for you during this process? Sure. Um, I love this question. I think one of the most unexpected things that happened to me was after I, I gave a paper on Charles Ledger in Laguna Blanca, Argentina, um, and the conference had put on online, I guess, the titles of the papers. And so I was contacted out of the blue by an archaeologist in Argentina, the University of Catamarca, who had seen my paper title. And they told me that they believed they had found the site where Charles Ledger and the Bolivian shepherds had stayed for a year in northern Argentina, that they had found the archaeological site. And so they invited me to come there to, or to go there, give a talk, and we could collaborate somewhat. And so I had copies. Charles Ledger, when he was in, uh, in um, Argentina, had with him uh, another European or Canadian is we don't know much about this person who was an artist and he created watercolors of different scenes including the settlement in Laguna Blanca and so I took with me copies of those color images and the archaeologists were able to use them to kind of confirm from the pictures of the from the geographical 
formations that were included in some of the watercolors and for the way that setup of the corrals were done and the pictures was uh, enabled them or helped them to confirm that they had indeed found Charles Ledger's site. So that was really exciting. Um, I, I just, being able to go to Laguna Blanca with this team of experts and hear their story about the excavation of the site, it was just thrilling. And I, I just, it was one of the kind of gems of the project. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, talk about interdisciplinary collaboration there. Thank you for sharing that surprise with us. Um, I do have a final question, though the answer I accept might be, I'm done now and that's okay because you have just retired, as you mentioned at the beginning. Um, but is there anything you're working on now, looking to work on, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this topic that you'd like to highlight? And again, the answer could be learning how to cook bread. I don't know. <laughs> sure. Um, my book is a little long. Yeah. And I had to cut one chapter from it um, just because of length considerations. And so I actually was able to, I just recently published that. Um, and that came out in the Hispanic American Historical Review. And that was uh, related to the book. It was the story of a priest in Peru in the 1830s and 40s who worked on hybridizing alpacas and vicuñas with the idea of creating a new domesticated vicuña with the docility of the alpaca to create a new uh, industry for Peru. Uh, so I, I follow his work. It was an interesting priest. Then uh, I have a, a couple other things I'm working on that are spin-offs from the book. Uh, there's a rival of Charles Ledger in Australia. And he, this other rival, a man named Duffield, wanted also to bring a large flock of alpacas into Australia around the same time as Charles Ledger. And so it's kind of a fascinating story of rivalry and competition between the two men. And so I, I would like to tell that story. And then uh, one other uh, story I would like to tell uh, it has to do with the, the diseases, the kinds of diseases that impacted the camelid populations that were moved out of the Andes. I would like to look into that more, especially the skin diseases uh, and write a, a piece on that. And I think that might bring my my camelid stories to an end. <laughs> I have one more story on Charles Ledger and his connections with uh, Kanyawaya indigenous peoples who were in itinerant medical, or they are itinerant medical specialists. And um, they're a fascinating group. And Charles Ledger, not many people know this, but he actually has some connections with them. And I would like to explore that as well. Well, that sounds like quite a number of interesting things to be working on. So thank you for those previews. And of course, anyone who wants to know more about the llamas and the various projects to get them out of the Andes can read the book, Llamas Beyond the Andes, The Untold History of Camelids in the Modern World, published by University of Texas Press. Marsha, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Miranda. I really appreciated this opportunity and I appreciated your questions.